Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Jake Saper on the pod. Jake is a general partner at Emergence Capital, and today we're going to cover all things SaaS. I mean, frankly, there's so much that I want to cover with Jake that I'm already thinking about how we're going to fit it all in. But everything from Emergence's DC's areas to moats and SaaS to how LMs are affecting the current state of SaaS right now. So uh, welcome to the show, Jake. Thank you so much, Shamak. I'm stoked to be here. Let's just dive right in because there's so much to cover. So Emergence for the listeners has backed some just absolutely insane and incredible SaaS companies. Salesforce, Zoom, Gusto, Viva, Build.com. We're going to go through other examples that are currently scaling very rapidly. And I think what I just want to first start off with is just what have you learned with working and seeing these incredible founders that are building multi-billion dollar public companies found their companies and go through that journey? I guess one thing I'd say is it's never obvious at the beginning. So obviously, in retrospect, we can say those are all amazing companies with amazing founders. But we've been around for 20 years now. We went through an analysis of the companies that we backed that have returned a bunch of capital and looked back at the original investment memos we wrote for each of them. And, you know, we had serious questions with all of them. Very few of them were completely obvious. So I guess that's the, the first thing is, is you know, it's, it's hard to see at the beginning for, I think, for everyone. I think, obviously, one of the key traits that all those companies have is founders with incredible persistence. Effectively, no companies have an easy journey. Even the ones that look easy are not actually easy on the inside. And so a lot of it is like the grit and persistence that these people have. So we spend a lot of time trying to get to know founders ahead of time to understand their level of grit and persistence. The other thing I'd say, which makes some of those companies that you named a bit unique and perhaps even more relevant in this market is that they focused on efficient and profitable businesses from the early stages. So companies like Zoom, companies like Viva, companies like Doximity, all multi-billion dollar companies now, I think very few of them used any of the capital we gave them. Wow. So Zoom never touched a dollar we gave them. We were the first institutional investors. Viva, I believe, also did not touch a dollar. We were the only institutional investors there. Doximity, I think they burned some of the cash, but they were profitable, I think, by the Series B. So I think one thing that, again, is particularly relevant, perhaps, in this market is that it is possible to build a capital-efficient software business from the relative early days. And if you do that, you as a founder obviously get to maintain more ownership over time because you don't dilute yourself as much. The cap table in general is quite happy. And obviously, you trade it at higher multiples, ultimately. So it's a lost art, particularly amongst the folks that founded companies in zero interest rate environments. But I think it's coming back in style again. It's sort of like 90s fashion. <laughs> it kind of went out of style for a while and like now right. it's back. <laughs> well, um, so off of that, I have a question. You mentioned the grit and persistence that you're looking for. Is the way that you diligence that just references and kind of talking to people that they've worked with and stuff? Or how are you able to understand if a founder has that? So references are obviously really important. Understanding how they've behaved in tough environments in the past is a super helpful guide. Peter Gassner, the CEO of Viva, uses a kind of test for this that we have borrowed to some extent, which is he calls it the first 18 years, which is he just asks people to talk to them about the first 18 years of their life and try to understand what happened. Like, was there any sort of adversity faced? And if so, how did the person respond? And he uses that as an indicator of what their grit level may be in seat. 
that's a funny question to ask yourself too. It's not something I've asked myself, but it's uh, as I'm going through, I'm like, oh yeah, there's definitely some things I would talk to. Yeah, I mean, think about the moments where like you got hit in the face, and there are probably a bunch of them, and different people got hit with different degrees of force <laughs> through the course of their 18 years yeah. and responded differently. And you may have responded differently over time to successive punches, but there's just so many punches that are thrown at you as a founder that yeah. so much of it is just getting back up, learning from it and fighting again. I love that question. Well, I, I may have to steal that, uh, but, steal but, but um, I want to start with another, you know, very broad question. I'm purposely making this broad, but when you are typically investing in a SaaS company, what are you looking for? And I want you to narrow it down to two to three specific things. And it's very broad. So take it whatever direction you want to go. Let me take it in the direction of like what might be slightly less obvious because like market, traction, product, team, like all that, those are the standard things people look for. But to make it a little bit more specific, there's a couple things that I, I spend a lot of time trying to get comfortable with. The first is what is the level of product market fit you've achieved? And I borrow my definition of product market fit from Andy Ratcliffe. The way he defines product market fit is what do you uniquely provide that your customers desperately need? So it's the uniqueness of what you do and it's the desperation of your customers. And so I think a lot of our job as investors is to evaluate both of those things. So let's start with desperation. How desperate are your customers to begin with? What have they done to solve this problem that you're trying to help them solve before you existed? Are they currently spending money on solutions they don't like? Have they hacked together some internal solution to fix the problem? Generally speaking, this is not always true, but generally speaking, if your potential buyer has not tried to solve their problem in some other way before you came, you're unlikely to get a serious budget allocation from them because it's probably not a big enough problem that's risen to the level. So you really want to understand desperation. You can hear it in customers' voices when you talk to them. Some of the phrases that we like to hear, and this doesn't happen often, but when it happens, it's a big signal. Uh, you talk to a customer and they say things like, if we stop paying for this, I'd pay for it out of pocket. Oh. <laughs> or if we stop paying for this, I'd quit. That level of desperation, that level of like, I need this so badly to get my job done is a huge positive in the signal of kind of, okay, desperation. And the uniqueness thing is a bit more straightforward, which is, you know, what is your unique insight as you're building this product? And how does that differentiate from others? It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a long-term moat from that uniqueness, but you need some sort of uniqueness at least to start so that you have something to say to the market that is different from what others are credibly saying. In terms of that uniqueness, I, I want to just ask a question on that, which is uniqueness can take a bunch of different lenses, but it could be an architecture change, right? Maybe it's like, hey, I have a unique data model that somebody can't replicate, right? Or it's with the shift to cloud or mobile or whatever. Hey, I've created a new way to more efficiently do this. But at the same time, I wonder, like, how do you evaluate uniqueness when... I don't want to say a specific category, but you know, there's like the digital signature companies, right? Like, yeah. I mean, there's some that have orders of magnitude higher outcomes, right, than others. What Shomik's not saying is we invested in a company called EchoSign, <laughs> which became Adobe Sign. Jason Lemkin started that company and we partnered with him to build it. I think he would admit his sold it too early. And obviously, DocuSign has become the larger company. So it's a question like, how do you evaluate between EchoSign and DocuSign when you're... <laughs> 
when you're investing, like what's unique. But I guess like in terms of just like in those sort of markets, right? Like how do you think about uniqueness? And it could be specific to that example. By the way, I actually, I mean, Adobe signs a pretty big business now, so I'm not actually sure which is bigger, but in terms of the standalone value. I can tell you that had we kept EchoSign private, yeah. it probably would have gotten larger than it you know, did. It was when we sold it, obviously. So <laughs> True, um, true. <laughs> in general, I think most SaaS founders that have a business that's growing nicely regret selling it after they sell it. There are some exceptions to that. I mean, if you sold it in 2021 at the very peak valuations, <laughs> like you probably aren't regretting it. But in general, these things compound. I work with a founder named Rick Nucci, who started Boomi, the cloud integration software company, co-founded that company. And they sold that company to Dell many years ago. And the company now, I think, does half a billion in revenue within Dell. So like the beautiful thing about SaaS is it compounds uh, as long as you're able to, you know, keep an advantage. So it's hard to turn down acquisition offers, I understand. But often these businesses compound. I think Jason has talked about it pretty publicly too. And, and he's talked about how it would have kept compounding. So I think, you know, everyone's aligned with that. But at the same time, like, God, it's just got to be a lot of money staring at you in the face. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like it's irrational to turn down the money. But the reality is like some of the best founders are irrational. They have an irrational view of how the world should look. And so they're not solving primarily for their own financial outcome. It's bigger than them. You can see these like messianic founders. And actually an example of, of that would be Josh Reeves at Gusto. When Josh pitched us, it was called Zen Payroll back in the day. When Josh pitched us on Zen Payroll, he was very clear, even at the beginning, he said like, this is my life's work. This, I will be running this company until I'm you know, incapable of doing so. This is not a company I'm planning to sell. This is a company I will take public. This is a company that I plan to lead indefinitely. I'm doing this because I believe the world should look different. And you have to get on that train if you want to, if you want to be involved here. And there's just a level of, for lack of a better word, kind of a messianic element to it, which is like you follow this leader because they see something bigger than just dollars. It's special and it's irrational. I love that. Well, that, that's another thing to add to uh, what you're looking for, grit, persistence, and irrationality. <laughs> so that brings me back to like, the second thing I was going to bring up was how I think about founders. So in addition to kind of evaluating the depth of product market fit that a company has, I also, and we also spend a lot of time with founders. And then I ask myself a really simple question, which is, would I work for him or her? Because ultimately, I will be working for them, right? Like this job is a service job. At Emergence, we make one investment per partner per year. It's an extraordinarily focused approach. And we do that so that we can do everything we can to help the companies grow and succeed. And so I am definitely like in the mix. And so I need to be motivated to want to work for them. But the other reason I, I use that as an indicator is because it's an indicator of, I think, their ability to attract talent down the line, which isn't to say like, I'm the world's best talent. But if I don't have the feeling of like, yeah, this is someone I would follow, then it's hard for me to credibly bring my network and our network to this company and say, hey, you should absolutely work at this company. What I want to be able to do is for every founder I back, every founder we back, take from the vast network of SaaS operators that Emergence has accrued over the past two decades and say, this is the best person, and then reach out to that person and say, you absolutely have to work for this founder. This founder is unreal. That's the gold. That followership helps you attract great talent. It helps you attract great customers, great follow-on investors. And it doesn't have to be charisma. I think that's something I didn't fully understand. I've, I've been now entering my, I think, 10th year in venture. I think I conflated followership with charisma earlier on. 
classic charisma in the sense of like, you know, the person who can walk into a room and mm-hmm. sell a popsicle to Eskimos or whatever the phrase is. It turns out that followership can be built in a, a wide variety of ways. And so what I'm trying to assess is like, will this person have others follow them? Even if they're more of an introvert, even if they're, because in many ways for different types of situations, those types of personalities are actually more likely to attract the followers they need for that to achieve whatever that goal is. So bringing it back, it's depth and intensity of product market fit. And it's, would I work for the founder? That makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, I want to shift actually into some of the SaaS model specific stuff, because uh, I think a lot of the listeners and the founders listening will be curious about that. So I think first where I want to start off with is single player versus multiplayer products, because everyone has differing takes on them. You know, a lot of companies have been successful in kind of both ways. But how do you think about the difference between those two models? And will you invest in one either earlier than another, or will you look for a bit more traction in one model versus another? Or how do you kind of think about, you know, if they're still single player when they come to you versus if it's uh, already kind of moved into multiplayer mode? I think it's sort of a definitional question in some ways, which is like, I'd argue that most SaaS is multiplayer, even from the beginning. Because if you think beyond the collaboration elements of it, the productivity elements, generally speaking, have some multiplayer element. So if you're selling Gusto, just to bring back that that company, it's a payroll system, but multiple people have to access the payroll system. And so is that multiplayer? Is that single player for the controller? I think I'd argue it's more multiplayer. Like true, true single player for B2B software where the collaboration and productivity really doesn't touch anyone else in the organization, I think is pretty rare. Maybe Notion in the early days and note-taking apps are that way, but their goal obviously is to become multiplayer because ultimately that's how you expand, that's how you become sticky, et cetera. So in general, like I guess it depends on your definition, but if you use the definition of the product is accessed by multiple people within business, I think the majority of SaaS products are multiplayer from the beginning. Got it. Okay. And then within that, I guess, usage. What are you looking for when when a company comes to you with that, right? Again, if we're talking about the note-taking apps, right, you could have Showmix doing a ton of work, right, is in it every single day, is in it for three hours a day, right? But again, if we're using the definition of single player, maybe that's single player, right? Versus, oh, wow, Showmix shared with Jake the notes that he's been writing three times over the past week or something, right? Like it's a general question, but what gets you excited more or less in those sort of metrics? I see. So intensity of individual usage versus virality within an organization. Yeah, that would probably be the better question to ask. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's helpful. I mean, both have such magic. So I'll give you examples of both. One where I got it right and one where I got it wrong. So we led the Series A in a company called Guru back in, I don't know, 2017 or 2018. And maybe 2019, I forget, somewhere in those days, pre-COVID days. It's a knowledge management software company. And one of the things that stood out when we were evaluating their product, there had been a lot of attempts at knowledge management in the past, and most of it wasn't used, right? An admin sets it up, and people don't ever access it. It's a wiki that just sits unused and degrades. They had phenomenal daily active over monthly active usage. The numbers were roughly 40%, which means that roughly 40% of their you know active users use the product every single day that blew our minds that's very rare in SaaS, and we led the series a and the company's gone on to grow to some scale 
And what's interesting is that that rate has continued as they've added a bunch more customers that Dalmau has continued and is on par, at least for a time. I don't know what the latest numbers are for Slack, but it was on par roughly with what Slack's numbers were at one point, which is best in class for a SaaS company. So I think that you can see great usage in an individual basis and key off of that. I also think that the virality thing can be really valuable. I got to know Dylan at Figma prior to the Series B, and Dylan had just started to monetize, but he had been deploying for a little while within companies. And you could see that within some of his users, including companies like Microsoft, the product had started to spread virally. And the focus was a little bit less on like a daily active use case because not everyone is necessarily going to be in a design tool every day. But it was being accessed on a regular basis, even if not not daily, by lots of people within the organization. It was kind of spreading as they would share it with each other. And that turned out to be one of the key pieces of magic for that company. Sadly, we got cold feet on the monetization of it. It just started to sell. And so it was tough for us to get our heads around it. Obviously, looking back, we should have bet on that virality and on Dylan. And I deeply regret that, Dylan. Um, (laughs) um, But I think both can work. I think one thing that's interesting, just keying off more of the Figma story, is it sort of helped to inform a thesis of ours that touches on this multiplayer collaboration concept that we call deep collaboration. And what deep collaboration is, is I think increasingly software companies are bringing together productivity tooling and collaboration tooling around a specific job to be done. So traditionally, you've done your work in one place, and then you've talked about your work all over the place. And that's super inefficient, right? Doing your your analysis in Excel, and then emailing, slacking, calling, texting, all that around it, you lose all that metadata, you're constantly out of flow. It's a worse way to work. We just it evolved this way, but it's not ideal. I think the better way to work is you do your work in the same place that you talk about the work. So you can talk about the work in line and you have all the metadata and you don't have to switch context, et cetera. And I think part of the reason why Figma ultimately became the success it did and why it had such viral growth is because it had the collaboration tooling embedded next to the productivity tooling. Mm -hmm. And effectively, if Adobe was built for designers, Figma was built for design. And what that means is that anyone can collaborate within Figma. It's not just designers. It's built to share and do the actual core job to be done of design within it. We're also invested in a company called Ironclad in the legal contracting space that has a similar conceit in a different job to be done, a different domain, where you draft your contract, you iterate on the contract, you negotiate the contract, and ultimately you sign the contract all within one platform. And all the collaboration, both internal and with your counterparty, can happen within this software versus like opening up a Word document, writing something, emailing it to your colleague, getting their feedback, red lines, emailing, like all that nonsense, which is the way contracts have typically been done. So this concept of deep collaboration, we think, will apply to all sorts of jobs to be done. And in many ways, like I think back to your original question, that obviously begets a multiplayer future. Yeah. And that also, I think, takes advantage of a bit of a network effect, even within that single company, because, hey, it's spreading, other people are touching it, and then they can start using it and hopefully start to spread that actually outside of the company as well, potentially with with other stakeholders and so on and so forth. So you get this like little bit of this network effect that starts to spread outside of the company. Yeah. One thing I've found is that If you are able to sell cross-functionally, even within a company, or even not just sell, but spread the product cross-functionally, generally speaking, your retention numbers look better, which is intuitive, but it's proven out in the various boards I'm on. 
if you're not just within one function, it's generally hard to rip you out. And that's because like you become more of the connective tissue for an organization. And so the behavior change necessary to rip the thing out and put something else in affects more humans and there's more retraining and there's more friction, et cetera. So I think it's a better product experience, but I think it's also better for the, the software vendor. Yeah. I want to go through a couple quick hot takes actually, which are related to what we've been talking about. So you just mentioned retention, right? And there's always been this question that people ask, which is like, what is the single metric that I need to worry about more than anything else, right? And people will say, okay, well, it's gross retention. It's net dollar retention to show the expansion. No, it's ARR growth. No, it's some sort of like ARR efficiency number, right? Something like that. I don't know if you have a hot take in this space or not, or if you have like, obviously they're all important, but is there something, if a founder were to ask you that, you would be like, you know what? If you only had to focus on one, like here's what I would say. Yeah, there's sort of an umbrella metric and then you can dive into the various causes or drivers of each of it. And the umbrella metric would be net ARR growth. That is ultimately encapsulates, are people renewing? Are people upselling? Are you getting new bookings? What's the rate at which all this, that stuff is happening? So like that is the ultimate macro number. But ultimately, like if you're running a business, your job is to dive in and say, oh, okay, it's a gross retention issue. We're not renewing, but we are getting upsells or we're getting new logos, but we're not, et cetera, et cetera. So net ARR growth is the mama number and then the baby bear numbers, you know, all kind of feed within. I have uh, young daughters, so the, uh, <laughs> these analogies will slip in. I like the analogy, yep. Well, okay, next one, PLG versus sales-led. Do you have a, a specific thing you're looking for? I think commonly we say, hey, it should just be matched to the product in the go-to-market, right? But everyone seems to, especially over the last three years, seem to have a very, very strong leaning towards PLG and say you need to have a PLG strategy and so on and so forth. So how have your thoughts maybe evolved with all the companies that you've worked with? Yeah, I agree with your take that it's very dependent upon the product and the job to be done and the people you're selling to. Many, if not most products are not well suited for PLG, but obviously some are. I think in terms of how thinking has evolved here, we've always believed that PLG isn't enough. So when we invested in Zoom, they had a very early but very promising PLG motion. People just self-served into the product. What we told Eric, the CEO at the time, was like, you really need to layer on a sales-led complementary motion sooner rather than later. And we committed to helping build that out for him. So we ended up hiring this guy, Dave Berman, who was the president in those days, who kind of built out a proper kind of top-down sales motion. And I think part of the reason why Zoom was ready for the moment when the you know its COVID moment happened is that it had a pretty well-built-out top-down sales motion that complemented the PLG motion. So I think... We have always believed, and I think even more strongly believe now, that you need both in a PLG business. It is very hard to have a PLG business continue to grow when you get to 50, 100 million ARR in a sustainable and predictable way without more of an enterprise motion or more of a top-down motion. I shouldn't use enterprise because that gets confuses people, but a sales-led motion, I should say. So that would be my plea to founders who are avowedly PLG you need to think more about this. You should be thinking about a sales-led motion as a compliment. It doesn't make it less sacred for you. In terms of Zoom, like when did they start building out that sales-led motion? Because I mean, PLG took them, I imagine, pretty far. And even during the COVID days, right? A lot of people were interacting with it through a sort of PLG motion. Like from a Bullstar perspective, for example, like 
we didn't need to talk to a sales rep. We were just like, hey, listen, we need a uh, webinar and event stuff and things like that. Like just upgrade our plan to whatever <laughs> is needed to do that, right? And we just self-serve through the website. But when did that start to happen? And how should founders think about, hey, if you're having a ton of PLG success, like, can you just continue milking that, right? And just push yeah. off sales led because you can just keep that growth going? So Eric started to build this out at 3 million ARR. Really? Yeah. What? It wasn't like fully built out, obviously, but he started the process of hiring AEs and such. And I mean, you can ask him, but I don't think he would regret that. Like, I think that was the right call for their business. When you're talking about a, an organization like Bold Start, you guys can just upgrade the webinar and the whatever thing online. That's fine. You're a small company. But if you're trying to get a seven-figure contract from American Airlines, they have a bunch of questions. They want to understand you know, all the various security protocols. They want to understand there's just a bunch of reliability and uptime stuff. There's like, I mean, anyone who sold enterprise software knows there's a million things that you have to talk through with your counterpart. So if you want to be eligible for those conversations, you need to have a proper enterprise sales team. One of the great benefits that Eric had, Eric is technical. Traditionally, he was not as focused on go-to-market. Obviously, he's learned it now. But he was the VP of engineering at WebEx. And so he saw that ultimately to land the kinds of customers that Zoom wanted to land over time, you needed a proper enterprise go-to-market motion. So he had kind of seen the light already and was looking for a partner to help him do it. And that's the role that we played. How do you think about a core product taking you very far in the journey, right? So we talked about, hey, maybe it's not one go-to-market model, but in terms of, we can use Zoom since we're talking about it, but the core product did expand, right? Added on uh, webinars and events and things like that, right? But Zoom rooms and the phone product and stuff like that sort of almost happened a little bit after the revenue got to a pretty sizable scale, right? So how should founders think about you know sticking with their core product and continuing to expand out versus starting to think about, hey, what are the adjacencies that we need to move into? Yeah, I think it's a little situationally dependent. Part of it is how much room to run does your core product have? And then part of it is the competitive dynamic. Like, do you need to be adding things to differentiate yourself more if your core product is being attacked? So I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. If I think about a company like Viva, Viva started as a CRM for pharmaceuticals. They basically was Salesforce for pharmaceuticals. And they rode that wave. I don't know actually when they started to build product number two, but they rode the core product wave for a while. And I think part of the reason they, they rode it for a while is that Peter, the CEO of Viva's philosophy was, any product two, I want the opportunity there to be even bigger than product one. So I don't want to just add on things. I want it to be a bigger swing. And so he waited and he ultimately built something called Viva Vault, which is sort of a document storage style platform, but obviously HIPAA compliant and focused on pharmaceuticals and such. And I don't know how big that business is relative to the CRM business now, but they're both very large businesses. So it's a little situationally dependent in terms of kind of what your philosophy is. And I don't, I don't think there's a, a right answer. But it is true that once you get to scale, most companies, by the time they're going public, have multiple SKUs. Yeah. What about something like Gusto? And I want to ask, at the time that Gusto started, there were a lot of payroll providers that were already out there, right? So it's not like, again, talking about differentiation. I mean, obviously, Gusto did have differentiation. But it's a crowded market, right? Yeah. You're going into this, you have established competitors. Payroll is a fairly entrenched space where it's hard to rip those systems out. So when you're evaluating a company that is approaching that sort of a crowded market, and same thing goes for Salesforce, same thing goes for Zoom, right? All these companies that you guys have backed, 
How are you getting comfortable with the fact that, oh my God, we're entering this market where there's a ton of well-established competitors, people are already using the product, and we're going to go and attack them? So in the case of Gusto, it was very crowded. And as I said, it was called Zen Payroll, and they had a competitor called Zen Affits. So it was, it was not just crowded. It was like, it was crazy. They were the same name, basically. Um, and then you had ADP and Paychex and all the kind of legacy incumbents. I think there were a few things that helped them stand out for us. The first was back to the unique insight part of product market fit. Josh's perspective was that the VSBs of the world, the very small businesses, were being very poorly served by the existing payroll solutions. The idea is that the paychecks and the ADPs of the world have not focused on this, this segment. And as a result, this segment is desperate for new product. And it's a big segment. So the bet was, we can build a better product these people would much prefer to have. And the question is just, will we be able to do it? We'll be able to reach these small businesses in a capital efficient way. Because you know they obviously have lower contract values. So you have to get to them in a relatively efficient way. And what Josh was doing was he was starting to build a brand. It almost had like some B2C elements to it because the companies were so small. I actually remember a, a good friend of mine, Mitch Hauf, was Josh's chief of staff. And the two of them drove across the country in a, an RV like a musician's tour, like a band tour, and would stop at like coffee shops and record videos with their customers. And like they really like created a bit of a movement around it. And it's really special. So zooming back out, very competitive market, but a very large market, a founder with an insight that we diligence and believe to be true, that there was an underserved portion of the market. In this case, a messianic founder, as, as I mentioned before. Who would have thought payroll could be cool, right? I mean, I think that's... Yeah, <laughs> I think that's actually part of what made it special is like if you heard him pitch, it was almost like he was selling you the secret to life. <laughs> and then you zoom back out and you're like, wait, this is a payroll product. <laughs> but the way he talks about it, and I think he still does, is like, this is the critical thing for these coffee shop workers and for so much of America. And they have such a bad experience with it, both the company and the employee we could fix it on both sides. And Josh's vision then, and he's now started to build it out, is once we land there, back to your multi-product question, we can start doing so much more stuff, particularly for the employee who's an underserved group. Like, can we offer financial products to this group because we have unique insight, because we control the payroll, that they wouldn't be able to get from a bank who doesn't have that insight? Yeah. Gusto and Bill.com, TripAction, Shopify, a bunch of these companies have actually added on, when you think about adding on that adjacent product, they've actually added on the payments rails on top of that, right? And lower margin, but still, I mean, in Shopify's case, oh my God, like what an what a amazing source of revenue, right? So how should companies think about doing something like that, like that payments play, or if there's something else that's not quite you know, in that same go-to-market funnel and go-to-market motion, right? How should they think about adding on a product like that? My take on this is, for a while, there were a lot of companies that were pitching what I would call the Texas two-step. I'm from Texas, so I see the world sometimes <laughs> through like Texas dance language. And what that means is they would say like, hey, we're a SaaS company. Our ACVs are really small and we'll never build a large business with the software but we're going to make it up on the financial services or the other transaction thing we're going to do over time. In almost all cases, that didn't work. What's, the examples you described are largely companies who built successful software businesses and then who added on financial transactions and insurance or whatever it is after that. So I think our bias is a little towards 
build a great software business and then earn the right to become a trusted financial services provider versus the opposite route. I'm sure there are examples of the opposite route working, but the companies you just mentioned pursued, and those are the, I think the ones who have been most successful with this have pursued the software first, financial transaction second approach. If someone were coming to you and saying that, would you get concerned with that margin question though of like, hey, are we diluting our margins, right? Because we're going into this product. If the approach they take is like, hey, we have a great software business and then this is an add-on revenue stream, the good news is the great software business has great software margins. And so it's different than if they were selling software really cheaply with low ACVs and perhaps low margins and then added on another low margin business. Yeah, I'd have concerns then. I think obviously every category has gotten hammered in the markets over the past 18 months, but fintech has gotten hammered, I think, more than SaaS has. I think the reason that's the case is because the margins in fintech are just lower and it's not necessarily recurring in the same way that SaaS is. And so I think investors, even down market investors or up market, however you want to define it, the private market investors and VCs have started to realize that margins and recurring revenue does matter. And so I'm seeing fewer founders come with the starting with software, going towards financial services pitch. I still think that there could be viable businesses built with that, to be clear. I just think it's it's hard because you don't have product market fit yet. It's hard for the investor, but it's even harder for the CEO because you're building something, a software business, with the hope that the financial services that you're building on the back end will ultimately give you the product market fit you need, that that's really where the customer's pain point truly is. And it may be the case, but you're lily hopping, you're lily pad hopping to get there. And so you may land, but it's just a risky, risky business versus like trying to go after the initial core pain point that you see. Yeah. So before we get to the topic that I'm sure everyone wants to hear about, which is LLMs and all your thoughts there, I can't hop to that without first going into moats. So one thing I want to ask you about is how do you think about moats and SaaS? And I'll give you at least my general viewpoint on some of the companies. So something like Salesforce has, I think, the strongest distribution moat in the world. I don't know how you can break apart that channel. Zoom, talk about usability and just ease of use, right? And it's just amazing. For Gusto, it's probably something more of like a switching cost associated with the challenge and the burden of shifting over your payroll to somebody else, right? So we just talked about switching costs. We talked about kind of a softer usability component. And then we talked about distribution, which also can be hard for investors to kind of be like, well, how do we know that that's truly an embedded moat? Like that's something that, you know, is unassailable. So again, I'm starting broad, then I'll probably have some questions off of that. But like, how do you think about moats and SaaS? Well, distribution is a tough thing to bet on at the Series A. Yeah, Salesforce now has distribution, of course. But if that's the argument that the founder's making at the A, they've got to have some really clever distribution hack that's proprietary in a way that others don't have. So I think distribution mode is something you earn. It's not something you start with. Usability is something you can start with. I think it can be harder. I would say like of the companies I've been involved with over time, very few have had a technology mode. And granted, we generally are SaaS investors. And so a lot of what we're investing in is workflow technology. We're not investing in space technology where there's a true IP differentiation. But what's interesting about Zoom is I do think it's actually a case where there was IP and technology differentiation that drove its usability mode. In the case of Eric, as I mentioned, he had been the VP of Eng at WebEx. He knew why that product was flawed and was kind of impossible to fix without completely rebuilding it. 
And so he and his team built the core codec, which is kind of the core code necessary to run the product from the ground up. And they sort of were the world's experts in how to build that. And once you've established that codec foundation, it's really, really hard to make changes to it. And so all the existing players were going to be challenged and it proved to be true. They were challenged. And so that was an instance where I think technology did beget usability. You don't necessarily need a technology advantage to have better usability. I don't know if Gusto had a technology advantage relative to its peers. It may have been they just did better UX. They thought more about the experience for their users. They did a much better job designing the product, et cetera. So I think that those are forms of moats. I think there's another form of moat that is starting to gain more momentum in B2B. It's traditionally been a B2C moat, but it's worth mentioning here, which is there are increasingly network effect businesses within B2B. We've traditionally thought of that as the land of consumer. It's the social media folks and Google, et cetera. Obviously, LinkedIn is a phenomenal business that is a network-based business. Many would argue that the usability of that product is not good. (laughs) Many of us would prefer to use a different interface to access our network. But we're all there because we're all there. There are more examples of that that are coming in B2B. We're investors in a company called Project 44 in the logistics space. And they're effectively an API layer for logistics. So they connect the shippers and carriers and 3PLs and all the various players in the logistics ecosystem. And they are the rails. They are the API rails that sends information back and forth. And there's a very strong network effect for that business. Now that they've gotten to scale, you sort of have to be part of that network if you want to know where your package is. Now, we led the Series A there, and there was no network effect then, obviously. But Jet, the founder, had a very clear vision that that was was what he intended to do. He came from the industry, knew that something like this was necessary, and knew that if he was able to crack it, it would be huge. It started to work. The interesting thing about those businesses, though, is they can be less capital efficient because you've really got to get everywhere for the network effect to start to pull. So I think what you may see with some of these B2B businesses, particularly that are B2B network effect businesses that are selling particularly more to businesses than kind of the more consumery LinkedIn approach is they're more capital intensive early on. And then once they get to scale and they have the strength of the network, you can see the capital efficiency start to spin. And we're starting to see that with Project 44 now because they've attained this kind of dominance from a market perspective. And so now they have a magnet impact. And that magnet concept is something that doesn't happen that often in software. Do you think that because of that trend, we'll start to see more of this influencer sort of component to it? In infrastructure, right? It's DevRel. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's how you get this sort of consumer-like adoption and behavior out there. I think Amplitude, for example, had a product evangelist, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the title. I've spent time with him. He was great. Yeah. So like, do you think that that's going to be a trend that we're going to see more of is like more people doing these product evangelists? Like I think Notion had community evangelists or, or something like that. Yeah. Camille Ricketts, who ran marketing at Notion, is phenomenal. And she built an insanely good community there. And you should talk to her at some point about kind of how she did it. But I think that the role of community in SaaS is growing. Like more and more people want to talk with others about their experience using the product. And so you have seen a growth of kind of community style folks within companies and not just kind of the notion more kind of consumer, prosumer type products, but Ironclad, I mentioned, is in the legal contracting space. We sell to big enterprises and we have a chief community officer, I think is her title. Mary used to run the association of legal ops professionals that brings all these folks together. And we got to know her through that. And then we hired her to run this this function for our business. And she's been phenomenal. It's been an important source of top of funnel and customer success for us. So I think 
what's cool is we're starting to see this community thing work not just at the grassroots for kind of prosumer style products but the reality is if you can be an evangelist for a persona within a company that's really valuable i'll give you another example so legal operations is a persona that's growing that wasn't that popular within companies before but as general counsels more and more lawyers are going in-house versus working at law firms as in-house legal teams get built out you need a legal operations person to figure out how we run in the ship and there hasn't really been a, a software champion for that persona and so ironcloud stepped in and said we will be the champion of that persona and obviously they'll buy our stuff in the case of assembled assembled is a product that focuses on selling into support teams and it's a workforce management software tool that helps you forecast and then staff for your support needs like your team one of their core personas is the support operations person whose job it is to figure out how do i staff and make sure that we have the right coverage and we're not overcovered or undercovered etc and there's not really a software champion for that persona and so they're building a community focused on trying to support the support ops person so i think traditionally we thought of community as like in the dev space it's really just like how do you get devs to love you in the case of Notion, it's a lot of like, how do I get students to love me? And kind of like a little bit more prosumery. But I think there are increasing examples of like specific personas within classic enterprises that you can build community around. That is very cool to hear about. And I'm excited to, I mean, hopefully more people write blog posts about this and, and do podcasts about this. Because I think this sort of information would be super useful for more founders to hear. But I want to dive into LLMs now because this is a topic that I've been wanting to pick your brain on for a little while. And so now I get to do it. So first, I would start with, you know, we mentioned deep collaboration already, which and Emergence is a very thesis-driven investment firm. And I think one thesis that you guys have is the coaching thesis, which you mentioned Guru earlier. I think there's a, a couple other companies that that you kind of classify in that bucket. And so uh, maybe first, let's start with that, because I think that dovetails really nicely into the current LLM wave. Yeah. So the thesis we call coaching networks is simply defined as using AI to help workers do their jobs better. So the concept is if you are having a sales conversation and your prospect asks you a specific question about your competitors, you should be coached in that moment to know historically what has been the highest performing response to that question in that specific context with that demographic of prospect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you should be nudged with the answer to that. And then you as the human can choose knowing all the other contextual data that the software may not have. Should I take that suggestion? Should I amend it? Should I ignore it, et cetera? And then the system can learn whatever you said, they can correlate with the outcome in that situation and then use that to improve the recommendations for everyone else in the system. That was the thesis behind our investment in Chorus, which we backed actually back at the seed and they were sold to ZoomInfo a couple years ago. That concept exists in all sorts of jobs to be done in the enterprise. As you mentioned in knowledge management, it's a very obvious one. So Guru is doing this within knowledge management. It can offer you answers to questions and they're doing some really cool stuff with AI where instead of Traditional knowledge management is like a search interface where you search and then try to, it populates, it gives you a bunch of documents that you can read to figure out. It's like Google. Yeah. Well, just like I think search in Google is going to move more towards not a list of blue links, but instead like here's the answer we think is the best answer to the question you queried. The same thing is happening in knowledge management where if you ask Guru, you know, what's the best response to a question about this competitor, it doesn't give you eight different links or documents to go check out it actually says like here it is and the, the cool thing about the network element to coaching networks is it then can learn okay you use that piece of knowledge or you amended it or you ignored it and then here's what happened 
And then it, it shares that insight with everyone else in the network. And that back to the network effect concept in B2B, I think that is a, sort of the next generation of network effects in B2B, where you get to learn from everyone else that is using these machine-generated recommendations, as well as generating their own recommendations or their own answers. And then you can kind of iteratively improve as a, as a network. Yeah. In terms of those coaching networks, so I think Textio is a great example of this, but it almost has like verticalized use cases, right? Like for hiring and for, I imagine there's a number of other ones, but hiring in particular or sales, I imagine too, is probably a specific vertical. And so with the use of LMs and being able to fine tune it on a certain vertical and a certain voice and stuff like that, do you see more companies maybe kind of going or skewing more to these so-called like verticalized use cases within like a horizontal product? Or am I thinking about that in the wrong way? I think there's value in going vertical because you get a depth of data. If you're staying horizontal and you're trying to be a coach or a co-pilot across a lot of different domains, you're not likely to have as deep of insight as you would if you were focused very narrowly by definition. So I think that you will probably see more vertical or use case or job to be done specific coaches that emerge over time. And there may be some common underpinnings between the, the LLMs that are used to build these things. But I think that ultimately the data sets and certainly the vector databases that will store the outcomes data and all the rest of that necessary to be able to say like, hey, when you do this, this is the business outcome that is likelier to be vertically specific. I think that's an important point to hammer home, which is that these things will become very valuable in business when they're tied to business outcomes. We're still in the very early innings of that. Most of these LLMs that people are using in a business context are not tied to business outcomes. So if Jasper makes a recommendation on what copy you should use for this product, it's not currently tied to, okay, then what happens? Right? So like we gave this recommendation and did this thing sell more? Did this click through more? Whatever. Like, and I'm sure they're trying to build in that direction as all these companies should. Ultimately, the value in these, this technology shouldn't just be in efficiency for the worker. It should be in improving business outcomes. Yeah. When you talk about improving those business outcomes, and again, we just talked about data and stuff like that. It seems like the, a lot of, frankly, a lot of the incumbents already have the data. They're shipping really quickly. I mean, Adobe just released something. Coca-Cola released an ad using Stable Diffusion, which was frankly mind-blowing. Yeah, that was a, such a cool ad. It was so cool, right? But like Coca-Cola is not sitting on their ass, right? Like they're yeah. looking at this, they're thinking about how to use it, and they already have all this data, right? And so in terms of the job to be done, it's like, well... I mean, they already have this data. They can train the models on it. They can solve the needs that we have, right? How are you thinking about this shift that LLMs have, which seems right now, at least, to kind of favor incumbents more so than, you know, new startups starting out? It's a great question. It's sort of like the billion dollar question for us as VCs and for founders who are thinking about using this technology now. This is different than before. And specifically what I mean by that is in previous technology revolutions, like on-prem to cloud, it was very hard for the incumbents to adapt. They'd have to rewrite their entire software stack. Now it's just an API call. So Coca-Cola and everyone else is experimenting with it. And more relevant to this conversation, all the software incumbents are experimenting with it. Salesforce you know, has been trying to do stuff like this for years. Many public companies have rolled out some sort of XGPT product. Doximity has a XGPT product that allows doctors to write letters to insurance carriers. And they've you know, all whipped this up relatively quickly because it's just an API call. So the question is a really good one, which is like, what is the opportunity for startups? And 
all of our thinking is still evolving on this, but like the rough framework we're thinking about right now is there's two categories of opportunity for startups. The first is going where the incumbents aren't. And the second is going where the incumbents are vulnerable. And where they aren't is perhaps more straightforward, which is there's some obvious things where there are jobs to be done that couldn't have been done by technology or productized before that were done with services. So there was no technology incumbent. And I think there are a few examples of that. I mean, anything that's largely a consulting-based business today is probably that. And so the incumbent you're competing with is a services business that's unlikely to be able to pivot to be a software company. So there's a bunch of examples there. I think part of the reason why legal tech is doing so well in the AI space is because of that dynamic. Marketing as well, like copywriting was something that was traditionally done by consultants or by agencies, et cetera. And I think that is, you know, you're seeing the AI technology vendors start to eat some of the lunch of the agencies over time. So that's category one is what could be productized now that couldn't be before. So there's no technology incumbent. I think there's other categories as well. There's a bunch of software products that are being built to support this ecosystem now. So obviously all the picks and shovels and infrastructure necessary to do this stuff is new. And so there's no incumbent. But there's also some derivative products that are being built and need to be built to make this industry a success. There's a bunch of compliance products that need to be built to make sure that this technology is deployed safely, doesn't hallucinate. You know, there's obviously all sorts of legal compliance questions around data usage. And that industry is just being built now. And it's really important to figure out how to do. There's also, you know, products built to understand, like, is this a bot or not? That didn't need to exist before. Now, whether or not that's a big industry, I I don't know. But I think it's an important job to be done. So there's a bunch of categories, I think, of stuff that doesn't exist yet. And then lastly, the evergreen, what is a niche that incumbent's not focused on today that you could exploit with this technology well? That's evergreen true. I'd argue it's probably a little bit easier with this new technology because you can move faster than you could before. And so carving out a niche, which is how a lot of the companies we talked about today started and expanded from there is still viable and perhaps more viable. Then the second category is where are incumbents vulnerable today? And I think you could break that down into, if you're familiar with Hamilton Helner's seven strategy elements, one of them is counter positioning. And the idea there is like, what could you do as the startup to counterposition yourself against the incumbent? The incumbent would be scared to respond because it would compromise their core business. And I think there's a bunch of examples that are going to happen there. The first is UX. There's a radically different UX that these LLMs can provide into a software product around the chat concept. And we believe that many deployments aren't going to be pure chat, but they're going to have elements of chat within them. And so smart software companies are figuring out how to adapt their UXs to achieve the job to be done better with this new format, incumbents are going to have a really tough time adapting. Not that they can't, they don't have the technology budget to do it, but if you're Salesforce and you've got millions of daily active users that are paying you billions of dollars in revenue, you can't afford to completely change the UX from under them. Salesforce's UX sucks. Everyone knows it. It's not because they can't afford to fix it. It's they've got this incumbency and distribution advantage and disadvantage in the fact that they're not able to pivot quickly for fear of pissing off their user base. Well, pissing off the user base plus pissing off Accenture, right? Because like... It's a delicate <laughs> ecosystem for sure. That's one. I think there will also be potentially business model disruptions that these startups can leverage against incumbents. Traditionally, I just wrote a piece on how AI is being priced in SaaS today. And today it's largely being priced as like an add-on or free as a learning you know, opportunity or just kind of a per seat add-on for companies like Notion, et cetera. I think over time, as this technology gets better and better, you may see 
these businesses shift away from traditional per seat or even kind of usage-based pricing. If you think about the software as something that replaces a service, you may want to charge the way a service charged. And often service is charged on deliverables, on outcomes. You know, you hire someone to achieve this goal for you. What if we started to charge for software on an outcomes basis? There's lots of reasons why that's a bad idea. And traditionally, I've, I've cautioned our startups against doing that. I think there's all sorts of like weird causality questions where you have to establish that you did this to your vendor or to your buyer, and that can create some animosity. There's a lot of reasons why it's tough. But as the software gets better and better at achieving an end goal, you can imagine that there's probably new pricing innovations that could come about, and the incumbents aren't going to want to change their existing business model, and they may be vulnerable there. I think lastly, there might be some distribution challenges for the incumbents. So many incumbents have built their business on the back of SEO. In a world where people spend less time in a search engine and more time in an LLM to do whatever they're doing, you can imagine that some of that SEO traffic may not exist in the same way. Now, I've already started to see some of our portfolio companies get leads from ChatGPT. Oh, wow. If you go to ChatGPT and you're like, hey, this is my situation. I'm looking for a knowledge management product. Guru is going to pop up. And so then you go to the Guru website and that's a ChatGPT generated lead. (laughs) It's still early days and who knows how this is going to evolve. And certainly Google is not going to give up its lunch easily. But you can imagine a world where some of these kind of changing winds do impact distribution for these incumbents. And to your earlier point, like if if these SIs, the Accentures of the world, formed an important point of distribution for some of these companies historically, and those services providers are no longer necessary to do you know, some sort of implementation, you could see some disruption in that distribution as well. That's a whole nother podcast that you just, you just laid out there because there's so many questions I have. But I think the fascinating thing is you're thinking about how it evolves. The outcomes-based thing, I'll be honest, like it does scare me a bit given the cash flow dynamics associated with something like that. I mean, maybe you have some sort of book-to-bill concept, but how you bridge that cash flow is going to be something pretty fascinating to think about. That being said, on the flip side, like of course, would people want to pay for outcomes-based stuff? I mean, it seems like a good deal for the customer. Who knows how this will evolve? And I think there's so many, there's probably more challenges than there are benefits, but I think that as this stuff gets better, you could see it. One potential approach to the cash flow issue would be you agree to an upfront fee the same way you do with regular software today, and you true up at the end. There's ways to get around the cash flow stuff if your thing actually really does add value. The challenge here is like, <laughs> you're really laying it all on the line here. In some ways, it's better because it's like, is your software actually helping? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, So one thing I'm going to link to in the show notes, but I want to make sure for founders that are experimenting with LMs or even just kind of starting a business, I think it's pretty interesting. You talk about this concept of data hack strategies. And I think given how incumbents are adjusting right now for some of the startups, I think they need to be thinking about some of these data hacks and how to do it. And you actually, I think, talked about Textio. And so maybe use them as an example of like, yeah. What do you mean by data hacks and how did they kind of use that to arrive at the products that they would eventually commercialize? It's a great story. Kieran, their founder, is brilliant and very creative. So Textio, is, as you mentioned, just for folks, it's an augmented writing tool focused on HR writing. You know, they have an LLM that coaches writers on how to write job posts more effectively and how to write performance reviews more effectively. 
more effectively being reducing bias and trying to achieve whatever outcome you're trying to achieve, trying to you know attract whatever types of candidate you're looking for and trying to deliver whatever message you're trying to actually have your, your employee hear. When they started the company, they started a while back, they didn't have any data, obviously, as most companies don't. So there's the cold start problem. So how do they actually make recommendations on job post writing without data? Well, she started with scraping. That was her first hack. So she scraped a bunch of web data. She scraped Indeed and Monster and a bunch of job posts. And she and her co-founder Jensen created a very rough heuristic, which was the amount of time the job post is live for is inversely correlated with how good it is. That is so cool. It's really basic, right? But it's like, you know, if the job post was up for two days, then like maybe it was really good. If job post was up for two years, maybe it was really bad job post. Obviously, there's so many more factors that impact the time than that. But it was enough to build a very basic algorithm that they could then go to potential customers and do a BD deal effectively to gather their data. So they went to a handful of enterprises and they showed them this algorithm, which was like very roughly predictive, but not good. And said, hey, if you give me access to all of your historical hiring data, not just your job posts, because we have those, but actually who applied and how quickly was it filled, we'll give you access to the product we build for free for, I think it was six months or a year or something like that. So the deal she did was basically, I'll give you free software in exchange for you letting me train on your data. And it worked. They built the product and then within a year started to sell it you know, externally. And the cool thing is, as they sold it, they gathered more and more data from their users. They started with a two-tiered pricing model. They had one offering where you could have kind of your own instance of Textio, so your data never went anywhere else. And that was a more expensive instance. And also, it was a worse performing instance because you weren't getting the benefit of everyone else's you know, constantly being updated data. Or you could be part of the network and have a cheaper product and a better product. And over time, they did away with the first pricing model because everyone opted for the second. The magic that Textio has is that the data they deal with is critical non-core data, which means it's easier for them to do deals like that. Because your hiring data is sensitive, but it's not your core IP, right? It's not your code base that you would never let out your building. And so people with the right restrictions in mind are more willing to kind of participate in that type of data exchange. So Textio is a story of multiple data hacks to get where they were, starting with scraping, then doing BD, and ultimately using the pricing and the business itself to gather more data as they got more customers. That is a, a fascinating story. Also, just the cool part is those insights, right? Like it's, it makes sense now that you say it, but honestly, I've never actually just thought about job posts in that way, right? Yeah. It's just not been a way that I've thought about, but that's a crucial insight that can, can change things. One thing I'm curious about is as companies are taking in all this data, right? One, you have the storage costs associated with it. If you are using an LLM, you've got the training costs associated with it, right? So does that sort of lead to lower margins in general, or do you think that on the pricing component, you'll be able to price for that value to be able to still maintain a software-like margin? It's very much TBD. I can tell you what the state of play is today and where I think it will go, but who knows? State of play today is the companies that I work with that are using these models, these off-the-shelf models, are not finding it terribly expensive, to be candid. And part of it is there's growing competition, obviously, amongst the model providers. And so there's a decrease in costs. Part of it is how you architect it, right? So if you ensure that you're not 
burning a bunch of tokens for a given task and you only query it when you need to or you cache the previous query, there's ways to build this in a way that doesn't necessarily break the bank, that you don't have to constantly be burning tokens and therefore burning money. So it hasn't been a meaningful impact on margin for companies so far that I work with at least. I think that over time, what you're going to see is that software vendors adopt likely a multi-model strategy where they're able to kind of shift between the models they're using based upon the use case and also potentially based upon the cost. Not wholly dissimilar to the way that many companies have AWS, they've got GCP, and they may pivot between them based upon cost and customer demands and whatever else. And that, I think, will be good. I think the other thing that's that's happening here that's driving a lot of benefits from a cost perspective is just the growth of open source. Like As folks can deploy their own models more easily and more cheaply, they have a more credible alternative to burning credits with OpenAI tokens. And so I'm actually like cautiously optimistic on the gross margin question here. The other thing I'd say is like, if you aren't able to increase your pricing based upon the value you're adding over time, then you may not be adding enough value. And that's okay. It just means like the business, that business isn't the best business. And so you need to figure out how to add more value. Costs will go up by definition to some degree pricing should be able to go up. And if it's not, then you might be not delivering enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, last question I have for you is, it's almost framed more from what we were talking about with LMs not being necessarily the same paradigm shift as it was from mobile or cloud or, or whatever. And so is it easier or harder right now to build in SaaS? It's easier to build, it's harder to stand out. Okay. Expand upon the harder to stand out component. If you go to Product Hunt right now and you search for AI sales tool, the deluge of products that you will be returned is sort of mind-numbing. And the reason that's the case is because it's a relatively straightforward use case that many people understand, at least at a very surface level. And it's an obvious place to deploy this technology. And it's pretty easy to build. Like you could just spin up something on top of OpenAI and build it, you know, tomorrow. So you see a lot of vendors as a result. Now, the way that we've been thinking about this is from a differentiation perspective is how much of the job to be done that you are doing could be done by going straight to the LLM. If the answer is much or most of it, you may not have a differentiated product. But if the answer is like part of it could be done by going to the LLM, but there's a bunch of other workflow necessary to actually do this, or there's a bunch of other data necessary to get to the answer of whatever job to be done I'm trying to achieve, that might be more defensible. And so the more interesting SaaS-enabled AI tools are probably not the ones that are just a skin on top of these LLMs that are producing email content, but it's the ones that are doing like the way less sexy backend data stitching, data normalization stuff that then they can layer on the simpler, more commoditized email generation stuff on top of that to us feels like less flashy but probably more defensible in the long run but i think that's interesting what you said is like if you're an ai sales founder listening right now it's that summarization component of taking a long email or something and saying here's what the gist of it is well you can get that directly from the llm but what you may not be able to get is the workflow that surfaces that battle card or whatever that scorecard or whatever that is in Salesforce or in whatever system you're using. And so if you're going to build, well, maybe think more about that 
orchestration component, that workflow component of like, hey, the summarization is great, but then also now I can transform that into something that increases the value for founders, or at least that's kind of how I'm thinking about it a bit. That's right. Step back and think, what is the job to be done I'm trying to achieve? If the answer is just, I want to help BDRs generate emails more quickly, that job to be done is one that is unlikely to be differentiated over time. But if the job to be done is a broader, I want to help BDRs land more demos more effectively, there's just more stuff around that, which may include like, you know, figuring out the top of funnel stuff and who to email and how, and like, there's just a lot more to it that goes beyond just the, the LM email generation. And so there's more meat on the bone. There's more potential for differentiation. There's probably harder challenges to solve, et cetera. So a lot of it is like define the job to be done in an appropriate way where it's big enough that you've got room for differentiation, but it's small enough that you don't overwhelm yourself. On that note, we'll end things. This was just so much fun to do. And I'm, I've been wanting to pick your brain on all these topics for a while. And I'm glad I get to do it with other listeners to come along for the ride. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Jake, and for sharing all your insights. If people would like to get in touch, what's the best way for them to find you? I'm on the Twitter for however long that lasts. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can DM me there or DM me on, on LinkedIn. We'll see. Maybe we'll all be on Blue Sky, you know, in the, in the next few bit. But yeah, exactly. Or maybe I'll meet you in the Vision Pro Metaverse. That's right. That's right. We'll we'll go off of that. But uh, all right. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Bye, Chandler.